Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. Good morning. How are we doing? So pumped to be with you here today on what looks like going to be another beautiful fall day. This weather has been absolutely ridiculous. How nice it is. I mean, you couldn't dial it in any better, could you? And uh, man, I've just really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, it's an honor to get to teach. I'm t- every time Tim asks me to teach, um, I get excited, but a little bit nervous because um, it's, uh, it's an adventure. And I'll be honest, when I read this chapter for the first time, I went, Tim, you gave this to me on purpose because it's difficult. What the heck am I going to share inside of this? But the Lord is so gracious and the word is alive. And as you spend time with it, God starts giving you stuff very clearly. It's such a, an honor to study. And so I'm just thankful to be here with you. We're going to pray and we're going to dive into this. And I hope you get out of it as much as I have for studying the last couple weeks. Father, we are thankful, God, to you for your son, for how you love us, God. We, we come here, God, in response to your affection for us. And we just come reaching, God, leaning into who you are. God, we, we want to know you better today. We want to be challenged, Father. We seek you, Father, because we know that you are the best thing. You are the greatest thing. God, and we are created to be with you. And Lord, we just, you make that more and more evident. The more I taste, the more I want more, God. And so this morning, would you stir in us a hunger, a thirst for more of you? And God, would you move in our minds, God? You know where every single person in this room is. You know them, Father, better than they know themselves. So, Spirit, would you speak loudly in this space? Would you speak through me? Would you speak in the minds of every person here? Lord, we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You ever had a time in your life that seemed either chaotic or maybe even meaningless or painful? It just seemed like nothing was going right. But later, when you looked back, you realized that the Lord was doing something. You looked back and you were like, you were putting pieces together. I just didn't know were possible. Because this is what God is doing, right? When you are all controlling, God is working things out. And sometimes we forget to look back. Sometimes we're so caught up in our own circumstances that we don't look back. Or we don't even give God credit for those good things because we can think we achieved it because we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves. And so we lose sight, give ourselves credit, and steal it from the Lord who's due that credit. This act of God putting things together is something we call providence. And we're going to be looking at that through chapter 23. So providence is the protective care and timely coordination of events by which God, in his sovereignty, achieves his purposes, okay? And we're going to see that happening inside of chapter 23. Providence is quite different from miracles, all right? Miracles are great. We like miracles, right? But a miracle is when God works outside of, the, of nature to achieve his purposes, right? He's taking how we know the world to work in doing something miraculous like 
walking on water or splitting the water so they can walk through it or healing a baby in the womb that we saw here that uh, the doctor said there's no chance this kid will be normal. It's a miracle. And we should pray for miracles. We should look for them. Honestly, miracles are easy to spot. Providence by its nature is subtle and requires you to look for it. So it becomes a little more difficult. Let me give you a little story to kind of show this to you. Uh, Drew and Teresa sitting here in the front row. Um, They're some of me and Lisa's best friends. And five years ago, I didn't know them at all. Um, They were at a different church. Drew was struggling. Um, He was, uh, uh, beer was like Lay's potato chips. He couldn't have just one. That was supposed to be funnier than it was. (laughs) I'll take out those words, put in new words. Um, Anyway, he he was fighting. Now, they were at a church. Um, He didn't feel the need to move. She's praying that he would stop their intention, right? She wants to leave the church they're at. He's comfortable there, comfortable enough to not feel like he needs to change what he's doing. Then some decisions were made by the pastor there that made them leave. And who knows why they show up here, right? It just so happens that they show up here. They live in Oxford, okay? It's not like, let's go to that church we've seen some cars at, right? It's the opposite direction from really where they were. And you go, I don't know why they walked in here. At the same time that they walked, they came in on a Sunday that I was speaking. So we got to meet each other afterwards. Um, inside of the same time frame, I was getting really into woodworking. My grandfather was a woodworker, and I, I just loved the stuff he made. When you play guitar, you look at all the amazing wood, and you're just like, I wish I could do something like that. You know? So I'm early in the process. Me and Drew meet. He says, I'm a cabinet maker. And I go, oh, that's cool. Let me show you. We just built this drum cage. It was in pieces in the back. Let me show you what we're doing over here. And we immediately are bonded. Okay? So then I decided I was going to build my mom this uh, uh, chest and for Christmas. And I said, Drew, can I come to your shop and build it? And what should have taken two weekends took two months for me to build because we spent two months having a conversation across a table saw about life. And we just, God bonded us. And so, see, Drew had this group of friends who he partied with, who was his crew. He went out to them, and the Lord replaced them with me and a few other guys here who said, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. And so you can say, uh, yeah, they they just walked in here, and, well, it's coincidence. And you can say, uh, yeah, it happened that you were passionate about woodworking, and the woodworker guy needs some help. You could say that. It's coincidence. Or you could say, the Lord was arranging things we couldn't see. And here's the thing, right? It's not just Drew that got better. I got better too. And we've done it together. And still to this day, we call it table saw talks. Like if he's, he's like, I got to talk through something. You know, we go sit across the table saw. Sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. <laughs> right? And so the Lord is doing things, and I can look back and recognize, God, you were doing things we just didn't even know. 
and you ask them how their marriage is now, it's radically different. And it's not because this place is so special. It's because they were seeking the Lord. He was putting things in place. And God said, Drew, I want you to be my warrior. I want you to come out and you're going to be an impact on the kingdom. And I need you straight to do it. And he followed it. And he's going after it. And there's few I know as thirsty as him right now. He, he wants to know the Lord. He wants to impact the kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing being able to be part of it. All right. I didn't think that one was going to get me emotional, but it did a little bit because in the front row we made strong eye contact. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So we're going to see... God's providence, but we're going to walk through this chapter because there's some important things inside of here. Um, so Paul has shared his story a few times in these earlier chapters, and something happens every time he shares it. A riot breaks out. Okay? So imagine if you're planting a church and you say, how'd your first message go? Well, a riot broke out, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> right? People were angry. Right? Things are not good. And this Roman commander is trying to figure out what to do with Paul. He tries to have him beaten. And Paul says, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. Which you can imagine just frustrates him even more because he probably thought, if I beat this guy, maybe they'll be like, okay, thank you for achieving. He's just trying to achieve peace. So this commander takes Paul to the Antonia Fortress, puts him in jail, tells the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body over the Jewish people, says, I need you to come to the fortress and tell me what Paul has done. We, we have got to figure this out, okay? This is where we open in chapter 23. First one, Paul, looking at the council, said, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Ooh. <laughs> Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Right? So you immediately go, why do you call him a whitewashed wall? Was this a common burn of the day? It was. Jesus used it. He saw it in Ezekiel 2. And you know what it means? It means you're covered in dirt and you covered it up. You're corrupt and dirty. You just took this thing, you just painted over it. It's still there. You might look like you have it all together, but you don't. So in this passage, right, you see this anger in him pop up. And you kind of feel like, I mean, he had, they had him punched in the mouth for just saying something, right? This is a corrupt court. When he says, I've been in perfectly good conscience before God, he's not saying that he is sinless. He is saying, I've made decisions according to my conscience to honor the Lord. Sometimes that has resulted in sin because out of my wisdom, that's going to become important in a, in a minute. Okay, we also need to understand who this Ananias guy is, all right? And this can be confusing. Now, I'm terrible with names, okay? I really am. It's, it's bad. I remember I see Steve Robinson in the back. Steve, you were so gracious to me when I first came here. Because when I first came, I was meeting a whole bunch of new people. Five times, I bet, when I met Steve, he said, hey, Steve Robinson, good to see you. Hey, Steve Robinson, good to see you. By the sixth time, I was like, hey, Steve Robinson, <laughs> I got it. 
right? He was being gracious to me because I'm bad with names, right? <laughs> he didn't know that, but he knew he was meeting a lot of people. So I appreciate that, brother. And I won't forget your name. So this is the third Ananias that we've seen in the book of Acts alone. Okay, in Acts 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira. We also see the Ananias who God said, go find Paul who's just had his sight taken away from him and we're going to bring his sight back. And so this is the third one. This is this high priest. What you need to know about him is that he was very corrupt. He was known for taking tithes from common priests and bribing Roman officials and wealthy Jews. He was not a good dude. He would use violence and even murder to get his way. He ruled from A.D. 44 to 66. So 22 years, he is the high priest over the Sanhedrin and became not the high priest anymore because of the Jewish revolt. The Romans came in, burned the temple and all of this, and Ananias was killed not by the Romans, but by Jewish nationalists who were tired of his junk. But he's there for a while. So this is the guy we are dealing with right? So Paul, besides calling him a whitewashed wall, makes this statement. I'm standing here on trial. You tell me I broke the law and you broke it by punching me in the face. This is corrupt, right? This is why he's angry. After he makes this outburst, someone next to him says, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I did not know that was him. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See what Paul did? Quickly confessed in his good conscience. He didn't want to sin, but he didn't know this, who he was speaking to. He would not have spoken to him like that if he knew. And he immediately confesses. Are you quick to confess? This should be our first reaction in things, right? God's hard though. But you know how much chaos you save yourself by confessing quickly? Think about David. The life of David, right? He commits one sin and then he moves into self-protection mode, which leads him to murdering a guy, which, I mean, things get out of control. But if you're quick to confess, quick to get back right with the Lord, you can eliminate these things quickly, and we see Paul do it fast. I'm, he's basically saying, I'm not going to sit up here and break the law, even though you're willing to do it. Let's be quick to confess. This brings another question. Why did Paul not know he was the high priest? I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. He understood all of this. Why would he not know? Now, there's people who speculate he was being sarcastic, but his response after that tells me that's not accurate. So there's a couple of theories. This is more interesting than it is. You'll go home going, hmm, just little facts you can throw around at a, your next dinner party. Okay. Paul hadn't been back there in 20 plus years. Okay. So there could be a lot of different people at the court. They also weren't meeting in their regular place. They were at this jail, this fortress. And so they wouldn't be in their real fancy attire that they normally would be in. So maybe he wouldn't recognize them. And probably the most likely, though, is that Paul had an eyesight problem. And there's evidence of that inside of Galatians. In Galatians 4, 
14 and 15, he talks about this bodily illness he has. And he says, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Sounds like something's wrong with his eyes, right? And then he says in Galatians 6, chapter 11, it says, see what large letters I am writing to you? And you could say, well, he writes long letters. Well, Galatians isn't long. He's saying, I'm writing large letters because I need to see them. And I know people in this room have their iPhone magnified 200% so you can read those text messages. So you know all about bigger letters, right? So there's a chance that through the beatings he had experienced, being stoned, being hit, all, all of this stuff, or maybe just nature, there's something wrong with his eyes. So he legitimately did not recognize that this was the high priest, which is why he insulted him, calling him corrupt. Even though those things were true, he said, the law tells me I should respect that office. But here's one thing Paul is seeing clearly. I'm not going to get a, free, a fair trial here. He knows it, okay? He starts, wisdom starts to enter him, I believe, and he looks at the 71 people who make up the Sanhedrin, and he realizes that some of these are Sadducees and some of these are Pharisees. And he says to them this, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And what this did was split them in half because Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the Old Testament. They just believed in the Torah, the first five books, that's it. They didn't believe in miracles or angels, all of that. They were kind of the more liberal side of the equation. They just were very straight ahead. This is what we can see and touch. This is it. And then the Pharisees all of a sudden are like, this is our guy. That's our guy. He's a Pharisee, just like us, right? My dad was a Pharisee. I'm a, I was a Pharisee, or am a Pharisee. And I'm here because of the resurrection, which is true because he was proclaiming Jesus had risen from the dead, right? And so he's proclaiming this. He got them to agree with him and turn on each other, and they start bickering again and fighting each other. And once again, you can feel this commander so ticked off. I was thinking about this and said, what he did to this group would be very similar so if I came in here, because the majority were Pharisees, if I came in here and said, my dad played for UGA, I played for UGA, and God willing, my son will play for UGA. And probably over 50% of the room would go, that's our guy, yes. I don't care what he says after this. I like that guy. He, you know, it's, it, right? It's like you, you win over half the crowd. It doesn't matter that some of them weren't there. You got, you got a majority, right? So he spared his sentencing at least for another day. All right, Paul, arguing breaks out. Commander, once again, frustrated, doesn't know what to do. He brings uh, Paul back to the, to the cell, and uh, they're figuring things out. You can imagine Paul sitting there trying to figure out what is God doing in all of this. I imagine the uh, voices of his friends who said, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't do it it's not going to be good for you there. Or just resounding in his ears as he's just sitting there going, I'm not going to get a fair trial. I don't know what's going to happen. And then we read this. But the night immediately following, the Lord stood by his side 
and said, take courage for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So Jesus stands next to him and says, take courage. You've seen me. I've been faithful. Trust me to be faithful again. I'm going to take care of this. And when Jesus says, you're going to be my witness in Rome, what Paul knows is, I ain't going to die here. And that's where he's been wanting to go this whole time. I've been wanting to go to Rome. That's like the center of the universe, basically, right? I want to go there. I want to get to the Gentiles and proclaim Jesus who's radically changed me, okay? Now, he shows up in Paul's greatest discouragement, sitting there feeling all alone, what do I do? And Jesus shows up and says, I got you. You're going to be my witness. You've done a great job. You're doing it. The results might not have been how you thought they were going to look, You're doing what I'm asking you to do. You will go to Rome. Jesus shows up to Paul five times in the book of Acts. In 9, 16, 18, 23, where we are right now, and 27. Every time, Paul is in chaos and discouragement. He's broken, doesn't know what to do, and God shows up and says, hey, I'm organizing things things are going. You don't see it right now, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So my question for you is, when you are discouraged, are you looking for what Jesus is doing? Are you calling out to Jesus and saying, God, I, I, I maybe I don't get this, but I know you're faithful. I want to be courageous in this to know that you are putting things together, even if I don't understand it. Can you give me some comfort in this? See, I do think we are so good at taking care of ourselves that we, for many American Christians, we disregard the Lord until it's so chaotic that we don't even know how to lean on him. So we need to fix our eyes on him. And it's hard to see him inside the chaos, but it's also okay to be honest with the Lord and say, God, I don't see that you're in this, but I trust that you are somewhere, that you can redeem even the most horrendous of sins and turn them to what you would have done in this situation. When all hope is lost, Jesus shows up and says, Paul, we're in this. We're going to do it. Now, here's this interesting thing. The Antonio Fortress is where Peter was imprisoned and an angel freed him. It was a miracle. Right? Peter thought he was dreaming. He's, the gate opens. He's outside of it all of a sudden, right? It's like, what the heck happened? And so you would imagine that Paul goes, all right, we're going to Rome. Swing wide these gates. <laughs> Swing them. But that's not what happens. See, the gates swung open by a miracle for Peter, and they will stay closed by providence with Paul. See, we sometimes look at other people's situations and how God dealt with them, and we go, well, that's how you should deal with me, God. I should have a family that looks like that. We, did the, we made the same choices. We're following you. How come this thing doesn't look the same? And the Lord has different plans, and we miss it because we're trying to tell him how he should do things. And if you really start being aware of God putting things together, you realize that you would suck at it. 
I did ask myself if I was going to say that out loud just for a second in my head, and then I did. We can't put it together the way that he can. At the same time that Jesus is visiting Paul and saying, we're going to move on. An assassination plot, assassination plot, I think I said that weird, was arising, okay? These assassins show up and they say, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Right? So this is not good news. They're ready to kill him. They said, have the commander bring him down the steps like we're going to have another trial and we'll take care of it. It's 40 plus of these guys. Now we get to a very interesting passage for me. I don't know if you've ever known somebody a long time and you, you feel like you know them well. And then they give you like a piece of information, not something scandalous or weird, just like a normal piece of information. You go, how did I never know that? It's an odd circumstance, but I was thinking about this political commentator that I watched on TV for, he would just show up every once in a while for like 10 years, right? He was on much longer than that. When he died, they said, uh, when he was in college, he dove into a pool and broke his neck, was paralyzed from the, from the waist down, and he was in a wheelchair his entire adult life. I never knew this. I watched him for all this time, and they would, he'd be behind a desk sitting there talking, and it was just an odd revelation. I thought I kind of knew that guy or who he was, but he was constantly in that chair. The same kind of thing we're going to see with Paul right here, at least for me. It took me off guard for just a second. Verse 16 says, but the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, talking about these assassins. Anybody know that Paul had a sister and or that he was an uncle? I mean, we've been following this guy for a lot of books, and they didn't, all I know is he has a dad who was a Pharisee, right? But it just so happens, that's going to be my key phrase to imply providence, okay? It just so happens that Paul's nephew overhears that this plot is going to happen. That's all the information we have. We could speculate. Maybe he's training to be a Pharisee. That's why he's there. We don't know why he hears it, except for that God wanted him to hear it. So his nephew hears about this plot, goes into the barracks and told Paul, Paul called on the centurion and said, lead this man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So his nephew goes to the commander, tells him everything. Commander says, all right, I need you to leave. I, um, don't tell anybody what you told me. So he leaves. This commander, in his frustration and everything, and understand that the Romans had a hard time controlling the Jewish people. They were very independent-minded. It was very common for them to break out into riots and stuff like that. Clearly, we see it a lot. And so there, he's trying to contain all of this. It's his job. He's like the police force, right? And he's like, this is not happening again. So he calls a centurion to him. He says, I need you to bring me 200 men, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen and take this guy at the third hour, which is 9 p.m., so they're going to take him at night to Caesarea, which is like the Roman capital of Judea at the time, okay? So just for the record, that's 470 men guarding one dude. They throw him on a horse. They take him at night to this place, saving Paul's life, furthering his journey to Rome, preparing him for the work ahead. Paul experienced the faithfulness of God over and over and over again. 
And the fact is, uh, take heart in that he did get discouraged sometimes. He saw it over and over again. I mean, the plight was rough. So don't get down on yourself like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trusting in God because I'm just so discouraged. Allow yourself to lean into the Lord and be lifted up because God is working things out. Do you see, in, if, if you understand that Paul believed in this providence and you read the other Pauline uh, books, Philippians and other things like that, you, it's dripping in it. You just see him going, yeah, God's working it out, right? Like Romans 5, um, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. So when God, God is, is working it out. I've seen it over and over again. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen providence in my own life, but I went and I looked at it. I decided to remember and say, yes, God, you were there. You did it. Let me tell you a quick story. There's a woman in 1980. She's been married a little while. She has one kid, and I don't know why, but she decides to go outside of her, her marriage and becomes pregnant. Doesn't tell her husband this is what happened. They just have the kid. And then end up having five more kids. They have seven together. Then she goes outside of the marriage again and gets pregnant again this time leaving the family. Um, some chaos ensues, and the father, who now has these seven kids, who is running his own business and things, started doing drugs, escaping pain, whatever, no excuses. Things are going way downhill. The family ends up being homeless. They're living in friends' garages and different things like that. Dad would disappear for periods of time, and these kids who are really middle school is like the oldest. There's a seven of them. Are going, knocking on doors, asking for food, things. Uh, DFAX is searching them out, and as soon as they find out, they're moving the family around, trying to stay away from DFAX. Finally, the, out of the other aunts and uncles come in, and they say, hey, we're going to split these kids up. It's hard to have, say, hey, will you take these kids? There's seven of them. Right? I mean, that's hard. So they take them in smaller clumps of, of kids. And uh, the second oldest, the product of this first affair, and two of her sisters um, come to live with an uncle here in Georgia. Um, and uh, at this same time, right, I'm about, set, well, a little bit after this, I'm about 17 years old. One of my jobs at, well, one of my classes at the school I was at was I worked in the office one class, which is a great thing. I highly recommend it. Um, but I worked in like the uh, disciplinary office. And one of the things I had to do was I'd go to classrooms and pull out kids who were bad. I was like the school bouncer, right? <laughs> it wasn't nearly that cool. That's just the... Uh, <laughs> But if a kid was a, was a problem, I'd go pull him out of class and take him to see the principal, and then I'd walk him back. And, um, and that's important to the story, okay? The summer before my senior year, my parents wanted me to go to this church camp I had been to almost every year of my life from sixth grade on at the FFA camp here in Covington. Um, and I didn't want to go. I was like, I don't know as many of those people anymore. I don't know if I want to do that. And they're like, we want you to go. You should go. You know, they finally talked me into it in my heart. So I go, I'm standing outside, um, of like where we eat lunch and stuff. 
And this girl comes up behind me. She says, hey, I see you all the time at school. I turn around, I'm like, you do, don't you? Um, Okay. This girl happens to be my wife. Okay. My wife, who it just so happens, moved with her uncle to Georgia from California after the chaos that ensued there just so happens to be in the classroom where this one kid was constantly in trouble and I constantly had to pull him out of that class, so much so that I would just open the door and look at the teacher and she'd go, hey, go. (laughs) I was in that doorway a lot, but that's just, I mean, coincidence, right? And then uh, I just so happens that I go to the camp I didn't want to go to. She sees me and goes, oh, I know you. We go, okay. You know the steps that had to take place to get to that moment right there? And God redeemed so much sin to get to that point. The evil of adultery, drug use, I mean, what these kids went through was horrible. But it stood her right next to me because the Lord says, I have plans for that little girl. That's no mistake. I did better first service. (laughs) Three years after that day that she said, hey, I see you all the time at school. Three years after that day, we're married. Six years after that, we have two kids that are ours. 25 years after that, we uh, are now. I have my family seeking the Lord, aiming at the Lord, walking along with the Lord, you look at it and you go, I couldn't have put those pieces together, God. And it was so painful in some of those moments for her and her, and her family. And you go, where is the meaning? It's just total chaos. And the Lord says, watch this. Watch this. I want you to pay attention to this real quick. When we tell these stories, there is people who are leaning and moving towards the Lord, and there is people who are trying to work against him. God's achieving what he wants to either way, but we have to choose what side we're on. You can either be the one moving towards the Lord and get to be the product and recipient of that providence in the greatest story that's ever told, or you can beat your head against the wall and he's going to do it anyway. Because we read the story about these other people and we just go, yeah, these guys are in the way. But the Lord worked it out. My prayer for you is that right now, while we sing in just a little bit, that you would look back on moments of your life and say, God, can you show me how you are working? Can you show me, Lord, I might, uh, I might have missed it, God, and I don't want to take the glory from something that you were doing for myself because it's so easy to do, right? James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. So am I giving him that credit to where I can really see clearly, God, yeah, you are working. 
God, I want to be part of it. I want to see what you're doing. I'm tired of beating my head up against the wall if that's what you're doing. And you don't have to be perfect on it. And one of the things me and Drew talk about all the time, and Paul experiences big time here, is if you're following the Lord and you're doing what you're doing, and the results don't seem like how you think they should be, trust he's working it out. It ain't on you. It's not on you. People still have their free will. And God somehow, and I can't explain it well enough, I wish I could. I wish I had to, could, could look at it and figure it out for us. He can put it together. We can just, in ways we just cannot. So we need to trust him. We need to seek him. Let's go after him. Let's remember what he's done. There's a reason why in the Jewish culture, so many songs and stories were told to remember how God came through. Remember how he called us out of the desert. Remember, remember, he is a faithful God. Stop taking the reins all the time. Let him go. You can trust him. Let's press in.